Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. holiday season is off and rolling with the NFL in full stride and the NBA and NHL hitting mid-season form. BetOnline is your number one destination for all your sports wagering info. With up-to-the-minute sports wagering news, odds, trends, and predictions, BetOnline is the top spot for everything pro and amateur sports. And not just the big four, BetOnline has info available at your fingertips with both desktop and mobile access at any time for almost any sport that's played, from MMA to international soccer. Head to the BetOnline website today, and remember to use our promo code BELIEVE, B-L-E-A-V, for your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. BetOnline, where the game starts. All right, folks, Jeremy Evans here, your host of the California Sports Lawyer podcast, where we talk about entertainment, media, and sports topics. As always, appreciate listening in and making us the number one sports law podcast in the world for three years running. So this is an interesting episode today. Uh, this is uh, episode 45 of season five. As we come to a close for um, this season five coming up, uh, I guess, towards the end of November here and uh, getting into December. But we're going to be talking about uh, deal making in uh, in Hollywood, and particularly with uh, a look at the three different um, negotiated agreements with the Screen Actors Guild or SAG-AFTRA, the Writers Guild of America or WGA, and the Directors Guild of America or the DGA, and all the deals that were reached, those three deals that were reached with the motion picture and television producers. Um, the alliance, so essentially their their trade association, AMPTP, is the the designation, their acronym, if you will. But these three deals were closed. Um, the Directors Guild deal was closed uh, way back at the beginning of the summer, and of course uh, the Writers Guild came next about a month and a half ago, and then uh, the Screen Actors Guild deal was brokered about a week and a half, two weeks ago. So uh, very interesting. I think we live in um, sort of an interesting time when you're talking about industry standards and where things are going. You know, but in these deals, we're obviously not going to run through everything. One in particular, because the deals are not fully public. But then secondly, um, with a real focus on artificial intelligence and residuals, because those seem to be the two biggest issues that we've, as we've talked about on this show and in writing with regard to um, again, those two issues with the AI and residuals, those were the biggest issues with the WGA and SAG-AFTRA. With DGA, not so much, um, because on the DGA front, you know, essentially you, you can't replicate a director. I mean, I guess you could from an AI standpoint if you're trying to guess certain things. But at the end of the day, you know, you essentially need a director to kind of move things around and um, to direct the pitcher. Or, or to sort of uh, to, to run the television series, if you will. 
for the showrunner side. But it's interesting because, um, you know, with SAG-AFTRA and WGA, I think there was a little bit more um, issues there when it came to AI and residuals. And uh, we're going to talk about that today on the show. So I think when you're looking at the three unions in Hollywood, you know, really, I would say the biggest unions or at least the most well-recognized unions in Hollywood would be the Screen Actors Guild or SAG-AFTRA, as, as we talked about, the Writers Guild of America, WGA, and the Directors Guild of America. Of course, there's also a PGA, by the way, uh, Producers Guild of America. That is not a trade association. Um, it is not a union in that sense. Um, it is an association, if you will, um, but it is not a um, a union uh, when you're looking at these other ones. And there was some litigation over that, and there was a reason why that sort of came about, um, if you want to take a look at that case. But you know, ultimately, you have these three major unions in Hollywood for talent, right? And they've all reached agreements with the Alliance Motion Picture and Television Producers, which is the uh, trade association that is designated to represent the studios and the streamers. So again, as we talked about, um, these deals were all came to a close. They've all been signed. But the, the main issues had to do with um, residuals on streaming and on artificial intelligence for anything that was essentially what you call might call SVOD, uh, which is sub uh, subscription video on demand for any film or uh, or series. Now it's interesting because the deal the deal point for residual is significant because it's the first time that's ever been done. This is something that the unions have been calling for for a while, particularly as uh, films uh, films and series have moved more to streaming. And um, of course, there was a loss of revenue when you're talking about DVD sales because it used to be that you know you saw something in the theater. And then you might see it on television down the road, uh, but then, you know, for the most part, you were watching it again on a DVD that you purchased, whether that was a series for television or whether that was, um, you know, uh, some sort of film. That's all changed with streaming. And of course, DVD sales were a huge revenue uh, for talent and obviously for the studios. So since that's changed, this move to sort of streaming, there's been this sort of gap between what uh, talent would make uh, when there was DVD available. And of course, it's changed the entire deal-making process and what makes a fair deal in Hollywood. So again, this is a significant point, uh, which we'll get into exactly what the deal points are. But you know, ultimately, um, that additional revenue was not available now because there's a lack of this, these DVD sales. So the fact that all three talent unions, if you will, uh, were able to get... Um, you know, some fixed residual fee is a is a very, very important point, particularly with the loss of DVD sales. So let's break this down uh, a little bit. So some of the some of the three deals have similar terms, um, and then some of them don't. So we'll get into that. So for SAG-AFTRA, WGA, and the DGA, they all got a fixed residual fee uh, for both domestic and foreign uh, productions and distribution. So, uh, and there's also yearly increases with foreign fees. Actually, some of them were as much as 76% increase. So a significant jump. And then one other important piece to this is that ad-supported tiers were also included. So this is huge, right? Because 
potentially what the studios and streamers are going to do is they're going to take any ad money they collect and use that to potentially pay um, uh, the uh, these three unions, right? So there's this fixed fee. Okay. Now, for both SAG-AFTRA and WGA, the definition of a streaming view is defined as, quote, total viewing time for a film or season of television divided by the running time. Okay, what does this mean? Well, again, as I mentioned, you have this fixed residual fee, right? Okay, so that's a flat fee. They get paid, uh, the talent gets paid once a year, depending on the terms of the deal, but generally it's going to be once a year or whatever designation they have. Okay, but for SAG-AFTRA and WGA, there's also this idea of there's a potential for um, uh, this idea of sort of, well, what if the show overperforms, right? Like what if you get a certain percentage of views, right? As, as I just mentioned with the definition. Well, this residual payment on top of the fixed fee is sort of like a bonus. So that will vest or pay out when 20% of a streaming's domestic subscribers watch a title or a film or television series within the first 90 days of its release. Okay, so what does that mean practically? Let's say that a show is released on the streaming um, platform. And within the first 90 days, if 20% of, let's say for Netflix, the 200 million subscribers that it has, or whatever it is domestically, whatever that number is domestically, if 20% of those folks watch that film or series within the first 90 days of release, the actors and the writers will get an additional bonus. Now, where uh, this differs between SAG-AFTRA and the WGA is that the SAG-AFTRA's payment is far more. It's about 50% more than um, the WGA's bonus. It's double. Um, so essentially, you take the fixed fee, which of course, we don't know what that fixed residual fee is yet, and we might not ever know. I guess it could be eventually released, but at least right now, we don't know what it is. It's going to be 50% more than the WGA's in terms of what the bonus is. So that's significant. Now, what else did SAG-AFTRA get? And this is also significant. So they also created a payment distribution fund uh, overseen uh, to be overseen by the SAG-AFTRA and the um, Alliance for Motion Picture and Television Producers, or AMPTP. And they're going to pay 75% of the bonus to performers on films and series that reach that 20% audience that we mentioned earlier. The additional 25% will go to performers, the other performers. Set It's going to be set by uh, some guidelines that are you know yet to be determined. But essentially, this additional 25% will go to people who did not meet that 20% threshold that we talked about. So again, basically everybody who's in SAG-AFTRA is essentially going to get paid. Uh, some of the studios uh, colloquially for, referred to this additional 25% as the Robin Hood Fund, quote-unquote. Um, that's not the official name of it, but that's sort of how the studio is reviewing this, or at least one studio executive is reviewing this. And again, this is for for the members, the SAG-AFTRA members who did not reach the 20% threshold in terms of views, right? So again, this is significant because this is just additional money and it's a, it's a, it's a larger percentage of what's being taken, right? So um, very interesting. And I think that this point about residuals really cannot be overstated. Um, this is something that the Hollywood unions have wanted for a while, uh, and it's very good for them that they got this. 
The key issue to all of this, though, is going to be how titles, you know, film and series will be distributed and displayed on platforms. What do I mean by this? Well, because of this 20% threshold, exclusivity becomes that much more important because what you wouldn't want is some title be released on multiple platforms and then you're getting 10% on one and 10% on another or 15% on one and then 5% on another, right? You'd want 20% on one platform because that's the way the measurement works. So I think it's going to be interesting how titles are distributed. Of course, this exclusivity thing creates a potential problem, meaning that I, mean, I would say that for the most part, films are distributed at least in their initial launch on one platform. But as we've talked about on this show, and of course in writing, is that exclusivity sometimes is not the best idea because you want a wide distribution sometimes so more people can watch the, um, you know, obviously watch it within that first 90 days. This is sort of like the point of like with a movie theater. Clearly you want more movie theaters because more people can watch it in more cities, right? Well, in some sense, you can make the same argument with more platforms. Of course, exclusivity is always important because you know you want to create this sort of fear of missing out feeling. But again, this is going to be very important from the deal-making standpoint and from the collecting standpoint as to where this uh, where the titles are distributed, right? Of course, placement is going to be equally as important. You know, if you look at the hit series Suits and uh, Drive to Survive, which is about F1, and of course Suits is a sort of legal, um, uh, a legal show, if you will, that's become very popular and um, something that sort of had a resurgence, if you will. And of course, what those two sort of series prove is that placement's important. So both of those were were obviously shown on Netflix. And they were very prominent towards the top. People could see them. It would even be on the whole, we suggest that you watch this. So these studios really could do a lot of titles favor if they began to promote things. Of course, the problem is, is other brands will get upset. Other, other um, producers will get upset, actors, writers, because their stuff's not being promoted. So again, uh, just reiterate the point that where the title gets released and how it's displayed can mean the difference between success and indifference. So it's just very important and something that these groups are going to have to follow. Now, earlier when we talked about DVD sales, and of course, anybody who's followed this you know, realizes that DVD sales have definitely taken a dip. Um, but they may not be dead after all, because it's sort of following the resurgence of vinyl records where people like to listen to a certain you know, way of music. They like to listen, you know, listen to it on a record player. Uh, there's some sort of nostalgia to that. Final records definitely sound different. Uh, there's just definitely a different feel to them. Um, but DVDs are kind of being treated in a similar fashion now because what's happening with a lot of um, these studios and particularly with the streamers is that they're, uh, they're no longer keeping a large library of content on the platform. I mean, it's still large, but they're getting rid of a lot of titles. And of course, this is um, upsetting a lot of creatives, but it's also not great for consumers because then where do I, where do they go for this content uh, for shows that are no longer on a platform and get removed, you know, for the purpose of saving cost or, 
to highlight other shows or what have you. And of course, it brings up the question of what the con what the contract says with regard to distribution, um, and assuming that the fact that they're removing a lot of these things, these titles that maybe they have approval for that. Um, but I think one of the solutions to this is sort of having a physical copy. There was a great article in the Hollywood Reporter talking about this and how uh, where some titles are being removed from the library on on platforms is that DVDs are becoming popular again. So uh, very interesting. I remember a few years back, actually, I purchased um, wasn't a large amount of CDs. It was probably, I don't know, 25 or so of um, of some old some old albums that I wanted to take a look at. And of course, are these albums on Spotify and Pandora and other places, Apple Music? Absolutely. But to me, it was sort of nostalgic to have copy of the DVD or CD, I should say, and to have the look and feel of the art, which was always a big thing with, um, you know, with CD sales. Of course, Frank Sinatra, you know, my favorite artist would would often be the artist on a lot of these when he would create album covers for for uh, for his records. But this is something, again, my point is that there's been an resurgence in this, and this may be an additional revenue source uh, for, for any of the talent unions. Now, in switching over to talking about artificial intelligence, this was the other big issue beyond residuals inside of these three deals. Of course, we're going to focus on SAG-AFTRA and the WGA because this was not really something that was of a major concern with the DGA at this point uh, for some of the reasons I discussed at the beginning of the, the show. But with SAG-AFTRA and WGA, they, of course, had um, many concerns uh, with the introduction of AI, the use of AI, and how it might grow and be implemented. So with the WGA, the main concerns were around writing and the number of writers to avoid replacement. So the main issues, again, were making sure writers were writing and not AI, and then the number of writers in the writer's room, so to speak. So the WGA agreed to a deal uh, with the studios and streamers that specifically spoke to AI in a numerical and timeline sort of limitation, meaning that you know you had to have cer certain writers in a room, uh, you had to have certain things being done by physical human writers, uh, there's obviously some exceptions for the use of AI and sort of drafting some things, but ultimately it would be the writers to be responsible and employed. So I think for the most part, they got the deal that they were looking for. Um, and we'll sort of see how that plays out. Now for SAG-AFTRA, it was a different issue, right? Because with SAG-AFTRA, um, you're talking about using individuals in a sort of image setting, right? So you're filming them taking pictures of them, that sort of thing. Whereas writing is is very important from a telling a story standpoint, but you have to have the actor there to sort of show the story or tell the story or read out the story, if you will, play out the story, if you will. And again, this is SAG-AFTRA has a big problem because sort of this idea of when, when can artificial intelligence be used? Production, post-production, you know, how is payment for such use of AI? Is there a length? Is there a length of time for such use? So, of course, for actors, there was an issue about replacement. Uh, but it was more towards guardrails to prevent overuse, right? Because one of the problems with SAG-AFTRA and what they have to deal with is this idea not only of CGI, which is computer-generated uh, generated imagery, 
but also with AI, and particularly with regard to um, uh, generative AI and the creation of things. So it's getting both an issue for WGA and SAG-AFTRA, but I would argue even more so for uh, SAG-AFTRA because you could basically have deep fakes and copies of people and even contracts in play that allowed for this. But of course, SAG-AFTRA pushed back on that. I guess you could make the argument that it's easier to use uh, generative AI to, to write a script, which I think was a huge issue for a lot of the writers and the actors for that matter. But um you know, ultimately, we're going to get some restrictions in there. Okay, so in a SAG-AFTRA, again, their focus was more towards guardrails to prevent overuse. So this sort of guardrails approach um, focuses on the studios and streamers really monitoring what's going on and the, the act, actors doing the same. But if there is an issue, they have to go to arbitration, which is all negotiated in this deal between SAG-AFTRA and um, the alliance of... Um, uh, Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, or uh, AMPTP. So again, it was about this sort of preventing overuse, right? But as you may or may not know, uh, CGI or computer-generated imagery has been used in um, Hollywood films since 1958. Actually, the first film being uh, Vertigo, famous, uh, very famous film uh, in Hollywood. Um uh, with uh, with Jimmy Stewart, so obviously a famous actor. But I think some of the issues here were SAG-AFTRA did not want a situation where, let's say that somebody is filmed and the next thing you know they're being used in another film or they're being you know, duplicated or what have you, right, from a digital standpoint. And I think the digital issue was a big problem for SAG-AFTRA. Of course, some of the problems with this, some of the, the complaints that have been made um, and I'll sort of leave it to you to determine how valid this is, is this idea that ultimately that putting it in the hands of the studios and the streamers to determine sort of how AI is used and without like specific guardrails um, and, and a little more teeth to it, I think the argument from some folks is that it's just not enough and that the studios will take advantage eventually. We'll see how that plays out. I think at the end of the day, it comes down to the contracts. Uh, individual contracts that are negotiated in terms of how much AI can be used and how much a person, individual actor, is willing to be duplicated in a digital sense and reused or what have you. So that's going to be very interesting and key to follow. Now, it's interesting because you can kind of see the rest of the industry in some sense kind of falling in line or at least making, making changes to meet the consumer where they're at with regard to generative AI. So, for example, YouTube recently added restrictions for generative AI on its platform to prevent deep fakes and sound alikes. Okay. So, that's some progress there. You're talking about uh, the creatives. And then it's also interesting because it was announced, I think it was today or yesterday, that the CEO of OpenAI, Sam Altman, has left the company. Of course, OpenAI being the creator of ChatGPT. And um, Altman is now joining Microsoft. And he's going to be leading um, the AI team there with a specific sort of direction to create more tools and give more tools and insight to um, sort of software, right? So imagine, for example, Microsoft Word and combining with ChatGPT and how powerful that might be. So 
Of course, Word already uses some AI when you're talking about spell check or you know, some of the other things that you can do. But just imagine ChatGPT can be combined with Microsoft Word and some of the power uh, that an application like that or a software like that might be. Uh, so again, something to think about. I'm not sure if that's exactly what they're looking at, but clearly uh, Altman's knowledge with his experience at OpenAI is going to benefit Microsoft very much. And then of course, again, I think with a closing point, I would just say that a lot of these programs and software you know, for, for AI are very powerful, but it's one of those things where you have to consider the cost, not only from a implementation standpoint, but also from a human standpoint, right? This idea that we've been talking about on this podcast of sort of a AI bill of rights. And uh, of course, the president recently made some comments about this with regard to AI and having government approvals, which we talked about um, in, a, in a recent podcast in the last couple of weeks. It's just an interesting thing to follow. But again, I think when you're talking about the use of AI, it needs to be managed carefully and frankly considered before implementation. You know, it's not a good idea to implement a very powerful technology without understanding the full repercussions of it and how it's best used. Otherwise, you're essentially wasting time. So uh, again, I think when you're looking at these three deals with SAG-AFTRA, WGA, and DGA, I think they all... Um, have made good strides. I think, you know, for the most part, they all made good deals. I think one of the issues that SAG-AFTRA is going to have to deal with is this point of obviously um, monitoring the use of AI uh, with its members, so with its actor members. So we shall see. But this episode has been brought to you by Bet Online. Again, I'm your host, Jeremy Evans, the California Sports Lawyer Podcast. As always, appreciate you listening in and making us number one sports law podcast in the world. Hope that you enjoyed this week's episode as we tackled AI and residuals in the recent agreements with WGA, SAG-AFTRA, and the DGA uh, that were made with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, or AMPTP. So again, folks, look forward to being with back with you next week. Happy Thanksgiving to all of you and uh, a wonderful uh, holiday season. And we shall talk uh, very soon. Thank you so much.